James chapter 3, verse 13 reads, But who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness or wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's our text, and we are looking to God to give us help as we think of it together this evening. Now, when James is writing... Let me just refresh your memories. When James is writing, he's writing to Christians very early on in the history of the church. And so these are early days. And many of these Christians were still, um, well, they still had fresh memories of being saved out of Judaism and all that that was. And were still closely associated with that sort of lifestyle. And they've been saved. They have come to know Christ. And as they've come to know Christ... They are working out their faith in their environment, their social environment, their family environment, their work environment, and so they're working out their faith. And James is teaching them what that looks like. James is teaching them what the appearance of that would be in day-to-day living right throughout this epistle. And he's going to show that without the reality of faith being worked out, then there is no faith present and so there's no such thing as dead faith faith is living faith is alive faith produces fruit faith is able to be seen in the works and evidences of our day-to-day life and character so it's not so much what someone says that James is interested in it's much more what that actually looks like and the decisions that people make and in the character that they bear So James is speaking in very practical terms about the evidence of faith. What does that look like? And he's already started in that uh, area of partiality in chapter 2, and he's spoken about the problem of discrimination, economic discrimination. He's spoken about the problem of an unbridled tongue and of someone who speaks in a way that's damaging and dangerous and careless and all of that. Well, when we come to chapter 3, what he's going to deal with is the possibility of conflict, the possibility of damage being done by someone who takes the position of being a man of wisdom, a man of knowledge, a man who represents God. But actually, the reality is in his life that that is not true in the actions and decisions that he makes. So there's a conflict between what he presents himself as and what, in effect, he actually is. So he's going to speak about wisdom that comes from above, and he'll speak about wisdom that is from the earth, and he'll show what these two things produce, the effect of these two things in relationships and in people's character. He's going to develop that, because these believers were experiencing conflict, and... 
Christians experience conflict. You're not somehow separated from conflict when you become a Christian. In fact, the likelihood is uh, the likelihood of conflict actually increases. James writes in chapter 3 and verse 14, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. And the, the language there, it's not really a doubt. It's the fact he's saying this was actually happening and was true among some of them. So he's not addressing a hypothetical situation here. He's actually speaking about something that was true amongst them as a group of Christians. There was conflicting behaviour, conflicting character being developed. And some of it was of God and some of it wasn't. So here's the challenge for us. We're going to see the practical challenge of this in our own hearts, within the community of believers that we form a part of, in the local church of which we form a part. We need to bring this and make the practical application to ourselves. What sort of fruit am I producing? What sort of character is being developed in me? What are my relationships like? Am I actually showing the fruit of godly wisdom or is it some other wisdom that's being manifested in my behaviour, my patterns of life, my life rhythms? It's all connected. So look at verse number 13 and we'll see how this flows down. So he asked the question. Remember in chapter 3 he's warned about the possibility of people wanting to be teachers amongst the Christians for all the wrong reasons and he warns against that he warns about the great responsibility of articulating the word of God of teaching other Christians divine truth the the burden that that ought to be for the person doing it and the accountability to the Lord he's then spoken about the unbridled tongue that flows out of that teaching exhortation and now he comes to this issue of wisdom and knowledge there's a development in these three things. So who's a wise man? Who's a man of God, you might put it? Who's a man who demonstrates godly wisdom? Who's a man who's endued with knowledge? That is that the knowledge of God and from God is in this man. How do you recognise such a person? How can you listen to such a person and accept what they say and follow such a person? Well, he says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation. Now that's just, this is the King James Version, so that's old English language. And the idea is just this, out of a certain lifestyle. So it's a general statement about lifestyle. So if you want to know someone who knows God, who has the knowledge of God and from God, and who is wise in the application of that in their life, you don't just listen to what they say. You look at how they live. So it's not what someone just tells you. It's rather someone who tells you something, but you can see it in their life. You can see it in their character. You can see it being worked out in them. So you look at the lifestyle of that individual. And if you know someone over a period of time and in the ups and downs of life and the pressure points of life and the trials of life, you will see how that person copes. You will see the decisions that person makes. You will see how that person goes forward with God when things are not easy. You look at the lifestyle choices. You look at the coping mechanisms. You look at the demeanor of an individual over time. And you will detect in that general lifestyle what he describes here as his works. So let him show out of a good 
lifestyle, his works. So he goes from the general idea of lifestyle to the specific instances of works. So this is definable, identifiable. You can identify things that this person does that manifest godly wisdom and knowledge. So you can actually write them down. You can talk about them. You can identify them. You can isolate them. There are instances you can point to that demonstrate in his general lifestyle this wisdom and knowledge. So it's not all talk. In fact, he doesn't mention what this person will say. He mentions how this person lives. He mentions not what this person teaches, but what this person does. So talk is cheap, but action is not. And so he points us to that, which is interesting. And he's not finished yet, because he says, out of a general good lifestyle, there will be these singular works which demonstrate meekness of wisdom. So what are you looking for in this person's life? You're looking for meekness of wisdom. Now that word meekness or gentleness um, it can be translated both ways. It's the same word, by the way, which is one of the Beatitudes. The Lord Jesus spoke about the blessedness of the meek. It's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it is a work of God by his Holy Spirit who indwells us as his people to produce this character in us. This is produced by God in the person who is submissive to the Holy Spirit. Meekness, it's a spiritual attribute. It's not a natural attribute. And the idea is strength under control. And it was used of a horse that had been tamed. That is, it was a very powerful you know, animal, uh, and you would hardly wonder how someone, compared to the large horse, how someone much smaller and more insignificant could control and make that horse do what it wanted, the person wanted it to do. But that's the idea of bringing it under control, strength under control. This is meekness. The meek person is a very strong person, but is completely submissive to the Spirit of God. Moses is described as the meekest man in all the earth. Now, he was no shrinking violet. He's a man who led a nation through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness. So he was a man with presence, with authority. He was a man who stood up to Pharaoh. He was a, he was a man with strength of character. He didn't run and hide when decisions had to be made. He didn't run and hide in the face of problems and difficulties. He stood up and he stood forward. He was a strong man, but he was a meek man. His wisdom, his strength was not manifested in the way that strength and wisdom is often manifested in our society, which is by um, kind of extravagant displays of wealth, extravagant demonstrations of influence, all of that kind of thing. Moses did not demonstrate his meekness in that way. In fact, when he did, it cost him his entrance into the land. The Lord Jesus also described himself as being meek and lowly. 
No one had strength like the Lord Jesus. No one had an insight like the Lord Jesus. No one had words that were just opposite to a situation like the Lord Jesus Christ. No one had legions of angels waiting at his command to destroy his enemies. Such strength under such control. Remember this. You could not provoke the Lord Jesus Christ to sin. Remember this. You could not provoke him to a flash of temper. But his strength was completely controlled. So here is the sort of person who is a wise (coughs) person. It is not someone who is necessarily, but it could be, not someone who is necessarily intellectually revered or esteemed by our education system. It could be. It's not necessarily someone who has done tremendously in business, although it could be. These are not actually the parameters by which this is defined at all. It's got nothing to do with these things. It's to do with strength of spiritual character demonstrated in the day-to-day things of life in a good lifestyle with these examples of works which manifest wisdom with meekness. With meekness. So, James says this. Who is such a man? Now, there's a difference, subtle difference, but a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. For example, you can sit at a desk and gain knowledge. But when you go in, away from the desk, out into your workplace or your uh, school, college or whatever... And that knowledge that you have gained then needs to be practised. That's wisdom. So it is how to do what you know, when to do what you know. It is the implementation of that knowledge, which is wisdom. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding, according to Job chapter 28. Now he's going to show that there are two types of wisdom in this world. Look at verse 14 down to verse 16 and we'll discover the first that he speaks about which is the wisdom of this world and he uses a contrasting word in verse 14 and it is the word but and he says here is the contrast to that meekness of wisdom that wisdom that is from God. Here is the evidence of a wisdom that does not come from God. Now if you can identify yourself in here that's not good. But here is what he says. He says, but if ye have bitter envying and strife. (laughs) Now notice where that bitter envying and strife resides. In your hearts. So he's he's, he's saying, remember he's, he's spoken about general lifestyle. He's spoken about works. Now he turns and says, I'm not going to speak about works and I'm not going to speak about lifestyle. I'm going to speak about what lies underneath all of that. I'm going to speak about what's in your heart. Now, no one else in this room can say what is in your heart. In terms of the first verse, that's different. We can observe each other's lifestyle. We can observe each other's works and we can make a decision about them. But no one in this room has the ability to see into your heart apart from the Lord. 
So he says, I want to speak to you about what could be in your heart. Firstly, bitter envy. Now, the ESV is bitter jealousy. But what is this? Now, the interesting word definitions here. This idea of bitter envying, bitter jealousy, and I'll give you some definitions that I read, a distasteful attitude of selfishness that resents other people. Okay, so you, you think so much about yourself and you're so focused on yourself that it breeds resentment about other people. This wisdom is a wisdom that has to do with things deep down in here. You think a lot about yourself and you think very little about other people. And anyone who's going to alter that and in kind of change that balance, anyone that's going to threaten your view of yourself and your <coughs> ambitions for yourself and your thoughts about yourself, anyone that's going to cut across that provokes resentment within you toward that individual, deep down. Now come back to that. But then he says a second word, and it is the word strife. Now you wouldn't think that there could be strife in your heart. Surely strife something that is kind of outside, in action, but no, strife, he says, this is in your heart now. It's a kind of development. It's the word that actually means selfish ambition. One definition, it means a personal ambition that creates rivalry or antagonism. So you start with bitter jealousy, and that creates the attitude of competition and conflict and ambition, and it generates a party spirit and a bitterness towards other people. Listen, this is the way of the world. This is what James says is the way of the world, but we can, we can see this is the way of the world. We live in an extremely selfish age. The ethos of our age is basically selfish. The whole disintegration of the moral structure um, that existed in our country in relation to marriage and family, that has all broken down because of this selfishness. <clears throat> selfishness is at the core of it. Putting self and self-interest and self-satisfaction above the interests of other people. So people do things for that reason. People stray in their marriage. People uh, abandon their children. People do all sorts of things. And why is that done? Essentially, it is because they see their own priorities and needs as being more important than these other people. So they will go and satisfy them. And that's their primary interest. And that has permeated our society and that essentially, and there's so many other reasons, but that at the very core is selfishness and it breeds resentment and it breeds conflict and it breeds hostility, which again we see within our society and within our families. Well, he says, listen, if that is in your heart, you need to stop boasting and glorying. You need to forget about being a teacher for a start and leading others. And you need to be careful about your tongue as well because the greatest weapon that that heart condition will employ is your tongue against other people. And your resentment will manifest itself 
in vicious words and lies and gossip and, and harmful things that come out of your mouth. And it will flow out of this jealous ambition, strife. It's ugly. It's sinful. It should not characterize us as Christians. It's so different from the heart of the Lord Jesus, who was selfless, who was one who put the interests of others before his own interests. And that's what Paul teaches us in the book of Philippians. That is the mind that we ought to have as believers in the Lord Jesus. Well, where does this sort of wisdom, and when we use the word wisdom, you can use all sorts of different ideas that we use today. You know, where is this kind of world view? Where does this world view come from? Where does this self view come from? Where does this sense of priority, where does this idea of decision making come from? Well, he's very specific. He says it comes from three sources. He says it doesn't come from God. That's the first thing to say. Don't pretend it does. Don't boast as if it does. Don't be proud of yourself if this is the way that you're behaving. He says this is not from above. This is from the earth. This is sensual. This is devilish. Now remember the three enemies that the Christian faces. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Active enemies. Well, there's a parallelism here because he says this wisdom is earthbound. It is fleshly, sensual, and it is devilish. It's all kind of dramatic language. But when you break it down, it makes such sense. Of course it's earthly. What does that mean? It means that this worldview does not take God into account. It's earthbound. It comes from earth and it's for earth. And it does not take anything beyond the earth into account. Now, mind you, if that is your worldview, then that is how you will behave. Why would you not behave like this? I mean, you get to the grand old age of 50. Some of you made that before me. Not by very much, but anyway, you get to the grand old age of 50. And this is what happens to men who are not believers. Sometimes men who are believers and so on start to look about, see time drifting away from them. They have so many things they want to do in life. So many... Life just isn't what they expected. And then they start breaking their relationships and they start manifesting selfishness in their decision-making. And families disintegrate. Why is that? Because they're not thinking about anything other than what is in this earth. They don't take God into account. They don't take eternity into account. They think time's running out and then it'll be finished, it'll be gone. And their one shot at this is, is kind of slipping away from them. And so... The old midlife crisis kicks in, etc., etc. You get the picture. But you often hear that as the cause of some very strange decisions that people make. It is because this wisdom is earthly. It is from and it is for men. It is from and it is for time. It has no consideration of eternity and no consideration of God. Purely atheistic. And mind you, if there is no God, it makes complete sense. Because what else would you live for? If there is no God. And time is running out and you've got one shot at this then it turns the focus towards self and self-satisfaction. But then he says it's sensual. That means it's fleshly. It pertains to the life of man. It pertains to his flesh, his humanness, his frailty. And that's what is raised in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says the natural man, the sensual man, 
does not understand the things of God. Just doesn't get it. It's like your, your friend at your workplace or it's like uh, your friend at school and you, you get an opportunity to speak a little bit about the Lord Jesus and with fear and trepidation you, you enter that conversation and it's not a hostile conversation but they just don't get it. They literally don't get it. It's, there's, there's, there's just a, a lack of, of understanding. They, they cannot understand why you would live as you do, make the decisions that you make for a God that they just don't get. It is for this reason that their worldview, their wisdom that is kind of behind their lifestyle is all to do with that which is natural. Nothing to do with that which is spiritual. But then he says it's devilish. Now it's the only place in the New Testament where this word appears in its form as an adjective here. Because this wisdom has its ultimate source in the devil. The ultimate selfish being. It comes from him and is a reflection of who he is. Just like the wisdom that is from above comes from God and is a reflection of who he is. And you see this in the Garden of Eden. And the wisdom... Remember that he spoke to Eve about. And he said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, or it says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Who told her that? She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. You see, Satan promises much and delivers very little. The reality is very different. Well, in verse 16, what is the consequence of this wisdom? If as Christians, we adopt the worldview which is earthly, which is sensual, which is devilish, if we allow this sort of heart condition to grow within us, and remember this, as Christians, we can adopt this sort of wisdom. It will have an effect. He says in verse 16, For where envying and strife is, so where this wisdom is present, there are consequences. Now you just imagine this wisdom in this room. Now we're not, but you imagine that we were here as a gathering of a local church in relationship with each other on an ongoing weekly basis. And there were those of us in this congregation, if you want to use that word, and we were manifesting these sorts of things. Just think of the impact it would have on the relationships in this room. Think about the lack of care, the lack of cohesion. <coughs> think about any decision-making process, folk pushing themselves to the front, wanting their own way, no consideration of each other. Think about the relationships and the backbiting and the gossip and the one-upmanship. Think about people kind of seeking their own interests at the cost of anything and everyone. Now, what would that do to us in this room? Well, we don't need to guess because in verse 16 he says, there is two things, confusion and every evil work. Confusion. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33 said this, God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. The contrast is between peace and confusion. Where there is confusion, there's no peace. Now, that word confusion is the same word as appears here and used by James. It is translated in other versions as disorder. The same word is used, by the way, in chapter 1, verse 8, as being the impact and consequence of double-mindedness. And in chapter 3, verse 8, the consequence of an uncontrolled tongue, disorder. One writer put it this way, the same disorder is bound to break out in churches where people are pursuing their own selfish concerns and partisan causes rather than the good of the body as a whole. Now you just imagine that. You imagine what would be caused, there would be disorder. There would be confusion. No cohesion. But he's not finished there and he says, and every evil work. R.C. Trench put it this way, this expression contemplates evil not from the aspect of its active or passive malignity, but rather from its good-for-nothingness, the utter impossibility of any true gain ever coming from it. So if this sort of wisdom operates in this room, just to use the analogy, nothing good will come of it. That's the idea. There will be nothing good come of it. And there will be confusion amongst us. Disorder. Now you take that back to the local church, the assembly from which you came from, to the Bible class tonight. And you make that application in your own mind. And you determine that you will not be the person who manifests this sort of wisdom within that community. You will not be the person who's responsible for confusion and for nothing good coming from that. You can just see it. If you've lived through the strife and the jealousy that's been spoken of amongst a group of Christians, you know how destructive that is. You know there's nothing positive comes out of it. You know that it debilitates and damages and it produces bad things in you and also around you. That is the wisdom that ought not to be manifested amongst the Christians. But on a more positive note then, in contrast to that, in verse 7, notice the word but again. So verse 14, but, and then verse 17 starts with the same word. So the question is posed in verse 13, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? The challenge that follows that question and then two contrasting sections of wisdom. Here's the second one in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above. So there's a contrast here, the wisdom that's from beneath and the wisdom that's from above. And he's going to give us a description of that type of wisdom. And then in verse 18, in contrast to what we've just mentioned in verse 16, remember in verse 16 was consequence to the wisdom from beneath. Confusion, disorder, nothing good. Well, in verse 18, the fruit, he says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And we'll come to that in a moment or two. So you see the structure of this little section. So in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first, and that word first would indicate 
not just first in a list, but rather, I would think, first in terms of primacy, priority, importance, pure, unmixed, untainted. Now, it could point to moral purity, but in the context, I don't think it does. In the context, I would say it points to being free or tainted by the jealousy and selfish ambition that is identified in the heart in the previous verses. So the heart would be pure and not tainted by that. Purity of heart. So if we seek wisdom so that we can lord over others or use it for our own advantage or power or influence, that is not pure godly wisdom. Our motive ought to be pure. Glorify God, build up the person to whom we're speaking and so on. You know, when it comes to knowledge and when it comes to wisdom, it's very easy, especially when you're a bit younger, excuse me saying this, but it is very easy to become dogmatic at a very early age. Um, And most of us were extremely dogmatic when we were very young and that dogma kind of diminished when we... uh, learned a bit more as we got a bit older, learned about ourselves and learned about God's word and learned about others too. But it's easy, and I just say this to you because when you're young, you tend to argue a lot um, about the Bible. That's not a bad thing to discuss the Bible. It's a good thing to discuss the Bible. In fact, the first thing I ever talked to Sharon about was whether uh, women should wear head coverings at a wedding. (laughs) That great weighty doctrinal issue was my road in for a chat. Anyway, that's a whole other story. I don't think we ever finished it. But anyway, so when he speaks about purity here, it's easy to want to win the argument. But remember this. You can actually destroy the person in the process. So you can win the argument, but lose the person. So when you think about your approach to this sort of thing, remember this, wisdom is pure. It's not selfish. It's not point scoring. It's not winning anything. And the danger is that in this issue, the big thing, which is the glory of God, is lost. The wisdom that's from above is not like that, it's pure. Secondly, it's peaceable. Now, I won't run through these in great detail. It's always terrible when you get a big list in the Bible and the person takes 10 minutes in the first point and you're like, he's got another eight to go. How's this going to go? I won't do that. But the second word is the word peaceable. Now, the word peace is not a pure relation to the word truth. Remember this, uh, when Peter's writing chapter 3 of his first epistle, verse 11, he speaks about relationships and the need to turn away from evil and to do good, to seek peace and to pursue it. Peace is a good thing. Peace is something to pursue actively. It's something to value. It's precious. And listen, if you've got peace in your relationships, you've got peace in your local church, your local assembly, you value it because the contrast to conflict is terrible. And people who are older will testify to that. The value of peace. He says, this is the wisdom that's from above. It's characterized by peace in relationships. Pursue it as you 
one writer says, as someone would pursue an animal in the hunt. And Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That is the wisdom of God. God is a God of peace. Purity, peace, gentleness. Different word than we used earlier in chapter 3, verse 13. Barclay defines it as the man with this quality knows how to forgive when strict justice gives him a perfect right to condemn. He knows how to make allowances, when not to stand upon his rights, and how to temper justice with mercy. Not harsh. Not harsh. That's not wise, you see. It's not wise to take the letter of whatever law you're imposing and impose it without consideration of extenuating circumstances, the bigger picture, the people involved. You see, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. It is unwise to like that. The Lord Jesus possessed such a quality. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, he's spoken of in this way. And by the way, it's a fundamental requirement for a local church elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. And no wonder, no wonder. The need for wisdom. The need for that wisdom to manifest itself in gentleness in being able to see the big picture and being able to take a step back and to look at the situation and to make decisions, not just always imposing the strict letter of the law, knowing when justice would demand this, but forgiveness modifies that to this, and so on, balancing things. Easy to be entreated. Now, that doesn't mean gullible. doesn't mean you can always just be pulled one way or the other. But it means this, that you are willing to listen. You're willing to be someone like James said in chapter 1, verse 19, quick to hear. You know when to yield, when peace may be at stake. You know which hill is worth dying on. The wise man will, will listen. The wise man may change. The wise man will know when and when not to yield. You see, that's the wisdom of God. Full of mercy and good fruits. You know, many of these qualities echo the Beatitudes, gentleness, purity, peace, and that's true of mercy as well. Blessed are the merciful. And the Lord Jesus often spoke about mercy. Be merciful, he said in Luke 6, verse 36, just as your Father is merciful. Be compassionate to those who deserve it. Be compassionate sometimes, yes, to those who do not deserve it. Manifest this mercy because that's the character of God. It's the wisdom of God. We see it in salvation when God was merciful to us in spite of our hostility to him. And that mercy, by the way, will manifest itself in good fruits. And James is reminding us that that mercy will manifest itself in actual action taken towards other people. Identifiable action. Without partiality. We've spoken about that without hypocrisy, sincere, it's not two-faced, it's not speaking one thing to one person and another thing to another person. It's just been straight up and down. It's so difficult to be that. You know, some of you have no problem being that because you're insensitive and so you don't really care about the response or the impact of your, your 
language and other people and then some of you are very sensitive and just can't bear to say certain things to certain people you just know how it's going to impact them and the balance is found in wisdom and the need to be sincere no hypocrisy unwavering undivided not two-faced you're the same person to whoever and then in verse 18 he says this what will be the effect of that within your community what will be the effect of that in relationship well again just bring that into this room think about just do what we did earlier in your mind and go down these words in your mind pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be treated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without epoxy. It probably would mean there'd be a big cue to get your supper tonight because everyone would be going after you, after you. No, really, you, no, you have that. No, no, you do, you do. That's just annoying um, and not wise. But you see, the idea is take these words and put them into relationship. Don't just leave them as theoretical words flying around in the ether. But take them, grab them if you like, and and, and put them into a relationship and think, what difference would it make to that relationship if I was like this? I guarantee you it would make a difference to most of our relationships. Some of these words, definitely. Well, it says here, in the fruit of righteousness is sown. Now, it's interesting, fruit is rarely sown. It's usually seed that's sown. But here it's fruit that's sown. And fruit, however, I'm not an expert in fruit, but fruit, however, is of course necessary for the next harvest. For the next harvest will come from the existing fruit and seed and so forth comes out of the fruit. And one leads to another, is the idea. So the fruit of righteousness <coughs> is sown in peace of them that make peace. There's the idea of re-sowing, of continuation, of consequence. And the idea is this, it's the law of sowing and of reaping. So that one writer put it this way, let me just give you a quotation. Where you have true wisdom, that will produce righteousness that true righteousness will work itself out in relationship and it's described as fruit it will affect the relationship the consequence of that is peace and it will perpetuate itself it will be an ongoing impact in your relationship it will produce more righteousness which will produce more peace which will produce more righteousness. And it will go on. In a present tense form, it reads this way. And the fruit of righteousness is being sown in peace by them that make peace. And as you sow the fruit of righteousness, it produces more righteousness. The idea is that righteousness will flourish in a climate of peace in the hands of the peacemakers. Righteousness and peace. You see, that will be one of the definitions of the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist said that the righteous shall flourish and there shall be an abundance of peace. 
For where there is true righteousness, there is true peace. And where there is true peace, there is true righteousness. You cannot have one without the other. So here's the flow of thought. If you profess to be a Christian, there must be evidence in your life. You must live like a Christian. Nothing is more convincing, and there is no greater evidence of that than the manifestation of this sort of wisdom in your character and relationships. God's wisdom will be revealed in the way we live. It'll be manifested by a purified heart and humble peacemaking deeds of righteousness that reproduce themselves. Won't be one off. So, as we finish, let's ask a question. What about me? You ask the question. What about you? Do you have the wisdom that comes from above? Is this your world view? Is this the... Is this the thought process? Is this the heart attitude? Is your life characterised by worldly wisdom or divine wisdom? Two things could be the case. You've been around Christians for so long, you've actually picked up some of their habits. But you're not a Christian yourself. Because you know in your heart that wisdom doesn't exist. Or... You've been hanging around the world so long, you've picked up their habits. And your heart has been changed so that you manifest that wisdom. Here's the challenge of this little section. And James is going to come into chapter 4 and ask a question. Now, he's already asked a question in chapter 3. The question is, who's a wise man and endured with knowledge among you? An appeal to the people who are wise. Why? Because he says in chapter 4, verse 1, where comes wars and fightings from among you? Why are you always fighting? And he's going to answer that question based upon the information that he's just given us. It's a no-brainer where it comes from. It doesn't come from above. It comes from below. It's not peace. It's war. And he's going to speak about it. And remember this, James is speaking to Christians at the very early stages of church history. This is nothing new. Conflicting relationships and breaches in relationships and problems, they're nothing new. And when we look at James, James is drilling down into them and getting us to take a long, hard look at ourselves. And when we leave the Bible class tonight, I trust that is what we will do. When we reflect upon what this little section has been teaching us, Take a long, hard look at what is in your heart and if any adjustments are required. Let's pray.